Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, I'll be sitting down with Joseph Van Dusen, call sign Chronic. Joseph is in rare air, no pun intended, as he belongs to the elite community of B-2 stealth bomber pilots. He's one of only 600 hand-picked pilots to ever fly the exclusive $2.2 billion aircraft in its 30-year existence. Joseph finished number one as the distinguished graduate of his Air Force pilot training class, was deployed seven times, and tallied up 139 combat missions. In 2014, he was named B-2 Pilot of the Year, and in 2015, earned the B-2 Aircraft Commander of the Year Award. It was in that same year that Joseph became one of only a few pilots ever to fly a 31-hour exercise, in which he led a three-ship of B-2s on a strategic messaging combat deterrence mission. Joseph is now an entrepreneur, author, and well-known personal development speaker, in addition to flying the 787 Dreamliner for United Airlines. His book, Stealth Elevate, is a popular source of leadership and personal development gems forged over a career of top-level leadership. You can learn more about Joseph Van Dusen at www.stealthelevation.com. Now, without further ado, here's Joseph Chronic Van Dusen. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Joe, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for uh, having me, Brian. Um, I'm a big fan of all your content. You've had some amazing guests on and you deliver some gems yourself. So I'm just excited to be here and hopefully I can add some value to your listeners. Thank you. Yeah, without a doubt, because I, I do have to say you're the first B2 bomber pilot I've ever had on the show. <laughs> and how does one go about that? I mean, is that something you dreamed of being as a kid, like a pilot or how do you end up there? Yeah, no, I so my background's a little bit different. Um, in the bomber, we had several folks that were all about being bomber pilots, and they grew up in the B-52, and then they wanted to get to the B-2 or the B-1, and then they wanted to get to the B-2. But uh, I, you know, grew up uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, small Midwestern town, and and I uh, went to air shows as a kid with my my dad and my grandfather. And out of that came that love of aviation. And I was like, I want to do this. But nobody in my family was a pilot. Nobody had really served in the military, in fact. So uh, my grandfather served in World War II and uh, in the South Pacific. And he was a mechanic on B-17s and B-29s. And But he really didn't talk about it. You know, that generation just... Uh, they were pretty tight lipped when they got back home and they just wanted to live life. Right. They've seen a lot of, a lot of bad war. So yeah. I never had that influence. I just knew that I wanted to fly and, uh, and I wanted to fly in the military because I wanted to do the loops and everything that, uh, that I see at the air shows. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I went about that process, um, kind of just out of nowhere. I, I as I was going uh, through high school, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I want to do other than fly. So uh, it turned out that there was uh, Western Michigan University was like an hour from my house and they had a big aviation program. And and I was like, well, I, why not just apply there? And uh, I did. And I so I kind of stumbled into the whole thing. Right. And then 
from there, I, um, I got the itch to, to go down that military path and, uh, wound up in the air force, um, got selected for, for pilot training, kind of a, a weird way too uh, through officer training school. Most pilot slots come from the air force Academy or ROTC. Uh, and I kind of came in off the street late in the game. So, uh, I was honored to get one of those assignments and, and, you know, during that time I was waiting too. they were like, Hey, congratulations. You're going to pilot training. I was so excited. And then, uh, and then they were like, Hey, we're backed up though. Well, you got to wait a year. And so I was like, man, here I am this, uh, newly minted. I had, uh, my commercial pilot's license from Western Michigan university. I'm like, man, and now I got to find a job for a year. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I went, uh, I worked in a couple of factories for a temp agency, which was uh, really humbling for me at that time, kind of set me up for later success. Um, yeah. Once I did get to the Air Force, I went to the KC-10 Extender. That was uh, uh, an awesome big air refueling airplane. Uh, it, it was my dream assignment out of pilot training, honestly. And I started doing that and going all over the world, which was awesome. Uh, but I just realized that I kind of wanted a bigger challenge and mm -hmm. they had just opened up the application process for the B2 stealth bomber to everybody in the air force. And what, uh, what time frame was this Joe? Like what about to get in 2010, 2011 that I was thinking about it. Okay. Uh, I took my interview in 2011 for the B2, but uh, yeah, so that's the time frame. Um, but I didn't know. I was like, you know what? I can't find out anything about the B2. Nobody could tell me what that life was going to be like because it's so highly classified. So I'm like, you know, I just, I don't know. I'm going to take a shot, you know, why not? And so I put in my yeah. application process and, and, uh, and got selected for the in-person interview. And then when I showed up for the interview, that was a whole different ball game too. But it's not like, it's not like I, I was dreaming of being a B2 pilot. I kind of just stumbled into that pathway and it, yeah. it was something that was challenging for me. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do this. Why not? Why not just go and attack and see what I can see, what I can do, what my potential is. And that's kind of led me into the entrepreneurial journey and all that stuff too. I'm just always, always hungry for, for something more. And, uh, and I think that's very important as we go through our life and as our, uh, excuse me, as our entrepreneurial journeys unfold or our business leadership journeys unfold, sure. uh, you gotta keep, keep learning, keep growing and keep pushing yourself because we all have these Definitely. unique unique talents and unique passions that we can give to the world. And, and that's what I'm trying to inspire people to do now. Yeah, I love it. That's that's pretty cool how you've been able to tie it all together. And so what are the questions I have? Like, obviously, this is a, a very small community of pilots. Was there anything looking back when you said, you know what, I'll, I'll throw in an application to, you know, try out for the B2. Was there something in there in that resume that made this panel say, you know what, this guy, Joe over here, we're gonna, let's, let's invite him in here for an interview. You know, was there something there that really stood out or separated you from the pack? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, my very first, ever since my very first job in the Air Force and people 
may be surprised to hear this too, that, that pilots aren't just pilots in the Air Force. You always have these additional duties is what they're called, but really they're your full-time job. So I would show up uh, in training flight, for example, and I would be in charge of everybody's training and making sure that, that so-and-so went to their training and that the, everything was documented correctly. So we had these office jobs and we got to develop that business side of things too. Um, so I think one of the things that stood out is, as I elevated from as a, uh, what was I, I was a KC-10 co-pilot to start. Then I, uh, upgraded to aircraft commander where I was in charge of taking the, uh, $88 million airplane and the crew and doing the mission all, all around the world. And then eventually I made it to instructor pilot. Well, um, on the office side of things, I kind of did that elevation too. I worked from from training flight up into executive officer where I was working for the squadron commander and I got to see things at a high level at a young age and and realize, you know, the value of of giving out praise and discipline and how you can affect everybody with with your leadership. And that's what really got me going into this leadership mindset and developing my own leadership style, which um, having those opportunities at a young age and excelling in that, I think those, that stood out on paper to the hiring board. And they were like, hey, you know what? Um, this guy's performed really well and he's been given challenges and excelled during that process. So let's bring him in for the interview and, and see what happens. So Interesting. So they they were impressed by that you had kind of a well-rounded background and wanted to be a, a leader. Um, so it wasn't like they were just looking for, hey, we just want the, the best raw pilot out there. Like they actually cared about all these ancillary things as well. Right. And looking back on it, when I was in the B2 community and we were hiring people, um, that's one of the big things that they're looking for, right? It's not just your pilot skills. In fact, I can teach anybody how to fly an airplane pretty much. It's uh, it's the other stuff, the intangibles, the ability to stay cool under pressure, the ability to uh, handle any situation that comes up, whether it's in the office or in the flight deck, you know, you got to be able to to keep that calm demeanor. You got to make rational and good decisions and you have to process things at a very fast rate. And that's what they were looking for. In fact, during the interview process, it was fascinating. Um, I show up and and uh, there's about 25 of us and for 16 slots. And so we're whittled down and you meet everybody for the first time and and you're sitting in this big auditorium, right? And it's uh, yeah. uh, there's there's like a couple instructors that are there that are that are B two pilots, and they're saying, "Hey, welcome everybody." And meanwhile, we're all like looking around the room, sizing <laughs> each other up. Yeah, right? yeah. And we're like, "Who's that guy? Who's that girl? Yeah, yeah. Who, who who's my competition here?" Right. Um, but I just took that opportunity to say, "Hey, look, I'm here for a reason." And, uh, and I'm going to go just give my best. And, and this is a lesson for, for anybody going through anything, honestly, is just bloom where you are planted. I learned that at a very young age in the air force. Uh, one of my mm -hmm. very first mentors was like, Hey man, you're not going to like every job. Right. But, uh, if you do your best and excel at that, do the best that you can, you're going to get opportunities from that success that you wouldn't otherwise get. So you need to make sure that you're always putting forth your, your best effort, do the best that you can learn from your failures and grow fast. And then you'll get the opportunities to go. And so yep. the, the interview process, it was 
amazing. So we're sitting there and they, uh, they tell us, Hey, look, you're going to do a simulator. And we knew that we were going to do simulator, but they're like, this is an evaluation. And they give you a, a, maybe a five minute presentation on what the flight deck looks like. And they're like, okay, come back for your simulator time. And so I come back for the simulator time and I I'm so confused. I'm like, this is an airplane <laughs> that looks nothing like, like I've ever seen before. So, uh, okay, cool. So I show up for the interview and, and the first thing they do is lead you down the the legacy hallway and uh, you go through this big bank vault door like, right? And and the, just the weight of the situation, is, you just feel that on your shoulders. And it's yeah. incredible because you see walking down the hallway, every class that has graduated from the B2. And it was it was pretty, a pretty humbling experience. You I know? bet everybody's framed up on there. And then, then they lead you to the simulator door through, uh, through another bank vault door and the door closes yep. behind you. These things are, are like nuclear proof. <laughs> so, <laughs> so huge. Where is and, this? Uh, is this like in, in one spot of the country? Like yeah, this, so this, this is simulator? Whiteman, Whiteman Air Force Base. Uh, it's an hour east of Kansas city. Um, okay. that's where we have all the B2s and, uh, yeah. So it's in do the you middle see of the other like the other candidates like coming in and out like are they walking yeah. out like oh my gosh yeah <laughs> like there's a lot of that right you're like, yeah. they have the the bug eyed look on their faces they're like well, that's I'm funny like, wow what just happened there you know <laughs> <laughs> so we sit down in the simulator and my evaluator was awesome he's like he's like all right Joe you know hey we're uh we're gonna go up we're gonna do this thing here's the stick and here's the throttle. Uh, I'm going to kind of tell you the next maneuver we want you to perform, but this is a evaluation go. And you're like, Whoa, Holy cow, man. I've never seen any of this stuff before. <laughs> How am I going to do that? And this is one of the things that I teach when I, when I speak or when I do consulting executive coaching, I'm like, you got to be able to compartmentalize. And what that means is just take your environment, and put it in the back, you know, whatever's going on, maybe you're going through a divorce, maybe you're going through some sort of challenge in life that that has really got you weighed down, you know, financial pressures, like you talk about. So, um, yeah. you know, you got to be able to take all of that, put it in the back of your head in a little container. And that's, uh, that's just compartmentalization in a nutshell, and you focus on the moment and just perform. And so that's what I did in that time. And pilots are pretty good at this. In fact, we're probably too good at this because we we have a pretty high divorce rate. Uh, I fly with folks all the time that are that are very good at what they do, but they haven't been able to to tie in that personal development piece. Um, and that's another thing that, that I'm working on is stealth elevation is we're tying in not only the performance factor, but the personal development factor and putting those two together, which is uh, such a need in today's society. Um, yeah. But anyway, I'm sitting there in this, the simulator and it's time to go. And so I compartmentalized, I put everything in the back of my head and, and here we go. And so I'm like, all right. And so I just took a deep breath and this is what I do when I have like an engine failure or anything like that, like a crisis yep. moment, just, just, we call it smoke a lucky, right? Like a little lucky candy cigarette or something <laughs> like that. Just take a breath because if you immediately go into a decision-making process, you're going to make a bad decision. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be upset, like whatever it is. So, so you need to take that breath, orient yourself, and then go out and do it. So, so I did my compartmentalization, took my deep breath and I said, Hey, look, I'm going to give it my all right now. I don't know. I'm going to fail. And so 
you got to be able to fail forward and grow in those moments. And, uh, and I knew I was going to screw stuff up. I've never seen this airplane before. Actually, clearly, I don't know how anything functions. I'm just, there's a stick, there's a throttle. Oh, that's all I know. It's pure flying. Yep. Let's go. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so we took off and we did the maneuvers and I was able to, I did, I screwed up many things, um, but I kind of laughed it off in my head and turns out, you know, at the end of it, we, we did, they don't tell you how you did or anything like that. They're just like, okay, cool. We'll let you know how you did. And, and, um, but the point is like, Hey, you got to be able to fail forward and grow fast. And that's what they were looking for. And so when you yep. go back and you talk about like that well-rounded individual that they were looking for, well, it's somebody that, that is also able to process things and get over their mistakes very quickly. And that's what, yep. uh, that's what separated B2 pilots from, from the rest of the pilots that I've ever flown with. It was like, just, man, you're going to screw stuff up, but the faster that you can recover. And first of all, you make a yep. decision. And then you recover from that path, but you got to be able to make a decision and go down that pathway and realize that, Hey, that's the wrong way and pivot real quick into the right way. Um, yeah. and there's all kinds of ways to do that, but, uh, sure. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Pardon this commercial interruption, but this episode has been brought to you by weekly wealthy wisdom. My weekly e-newsletter that tens of thousands of subscribers already enjoy getting in their inbox every Monday. In Weekly Wealthy Wisdom, you'll find my latest insights on health and wealth in less than a two-minute read, including some of my favorite quotes, books, products, health hacks, paragraphs to ponder, and much more. Start your week out right with Weekly Wealthy Wisdom. Now back to the show. And a couple of questions I have on that. So, you know, as I'm hearing everything you're saying, what what's the age range here, the candidates? Are you guys all of a similar age or is it kind of like all over the map in the career spectrum? Um, I would say everyone was through their first assignment cycle. So uh, at least four years of active flying in the Air Force. So you'd uh, probably around between 28 uh, to 32, 33 ish. Uh, okay. was the age range um, because there were Got several it. people that had applied several times and they didn't get hired. They didn't get hired. They didn't get hired. And then uh, maybe finally they got hired on the fourth or fifth time. But this was my first time. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm going to give it a yeah. shot. If this doesn't work out, I'm going to go in a different direction. But because <laughs> like, I think about it, as you mentioned, like the, you're trying to compartmentalize and just focus on the task at hand. I imagine that of these candidates, you know, there's different levels of maturity just through life experience of a, a younger guy, an older guy, or someone that's maybe dealing with issues, you know, at home or has family or kids or yeah. another one who doesn't, he's 28, young bachelor. And I, like, do those play a factor or, or no matter what, are the good ones just shutting everything out when they're, they're kind of in the zone? Mm, good question. Good question. I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think the ability to, for those to compartmentalize and to be able to be in that moment and perform really separated all of the rest of that stuff. I mean, everybody's always going through stuff, right? We're all, we all have our own little baggage of the moment that we're dealing yep. with. And, True. um, the, and, and when I talk, I'm very specific about this in my, my speeches and stuff. I'm like, dude, you, you need to be able to compartmentalize, but you need to also not be a psychopath. Right. And just, you need that, to deal with that at some point. You can't just, I'm going to, I'm going to be in the moment and always be in the moment. No, you gotta, 
Uh, and what we teach is you work strategically from the target backwards, whether it's life or leadership, business, anything, uh, which is a, a different concept. But it's um, it, the ability to compartmentalize and just focus on the moment when you're in a crisis situation. And I like to dole down into that because a crisis mm -hmm. or a high performance situation, you need to be able to, to perform in the moment. But uh, otherwise, you need to back up and make sure that you're dealing with all that other stuff um, that's going on because otherwise you end up like like I was. I was an instructor in the B2, uh, newly minted. I was on top of the world. And then, uh, and then my divorce came and I hit my lowest point. But it's because that I didn't work on myself uh, in my evolutionary climb to, to be the best B2 pilot, best pilot, whatever. I was so focused on work and, and as executives and entrepreneurs and leaders, we yep. all get into this, right? We're like so driven by the next thing. Like, Oh, I can do, I can do this and I can learn this and I can grow to this and stuff, but you got to bring that personal development piece along the way. Otherwise yep. you're just, um, you're, you're not, you're not going to live life to the fullest and, and deal with the things that you need to deal with and be a whole human being the the true wealth that you talk about sure. um, on your yep. show. And, and to that point, I know you've, you've mentioned, you know, a few times kind of this personal development in tandem with what you're doing professionally. Is that a, um, in your experience, is that a concern in the military or in the air force? Like, are they constantly saying, all right, you just, you know, you flew this 20 hour mission, now let's talk about, you know, how's life at home? Or are they just like, I don't want to hear that. Like, just come to work and, and do your job. Yeah. You know, where's that that kind of the the status of uh, a personal development? You hear so much about mental health and all that. That's like a buzzword now. Where's the military in that conversation? Um, You know, I've been out for a few years now, but my experience is that uh, we need to do a much better job of that piece with our leadership and that's kind of what inspired hmm. me to form stealth elevation my company because it is true that the military expects you to do the mission mission first mi mission first mission always and so i got done with a, a record breaking for me at the time and very few people had done this was fly over 30 hours i flew 31 hours non-stop and Jeez. we had like 24 hours of recovery time and uh and that wasn't enough time <laughs> so yeah that, i don't think so it's, uh, <laughs> that piece of it now i did i will say this uh it comes down to what i found is the individual leader that's in charge of those situations so i've had some phenomenal leaders that are very concerned with your mental health and mental well-being and when i was going through my divorce in the military i had the most amazing leader and i would debt of gratitude to him each and every day because um without the opportunity to go and work on myself and he gave me the time to do that uh, I would not be where I am today. And I, I don't know where I would be because I needed to do that mental development. I needed to go to counseling. I needed to explore myself for the very first time in my life uh, in order to to get those foundational things that I didn't have. Um, whereas some bad leaders would just be like, oh, okay, do you, I don't care what you're going through, right? Like you're here, be here the next day. We need you. We're we're, uh, you know, a man short and you're putting extra work on the, the rest of the squadron and this and that. So 
I mean, that happens in, in the corporate world too. It's sure. It's just, uh, so it comes down to the individual leader, but if they themselves aren't personally developed or self-developed, then, uh, then they're not going to have that, that attitude, that platform to care about your well-being either, you know? Yeah. So, um, and to that point, like, I think when you look at, at leadership and you mentioned the good leader, I feel like in, a, in any sort of kind of like bureaucratic environment or, or larger company, perhaps even in the military, a good leader can rise, you know, as as they're caring about, you know, their their peers and their subordinates and they get rewarded for that. But I feel like sometimes a, a bad leader that's like, I don't care about that, Joe, get the job done. They might be able to stay there that there might like you guys as as the people underneath that commander or that supervisor, your thoughts may not be able to kind of go up the chain of command. Did you find that where it was like you didn't have a voice to that next level and they could just kind of hover there and maybe they're not being held accountable because they're dealing with the guys, quote unquote, like underneath them? Mm. Yeah, Uh and I feel like the B2 community would kind of root that out uh, more so than any other community that I've been a part of. So, um, but that being said, and I'll get into that in a second, but the uh, you know, leaders typically, whether it's corporate America or military or whatever it is uh, we typically rise based on performance, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, your ability to execute is better than so-and-so. So so you get this promotion or, or whatever it is. And sometimes it's the, it's an, it's the antithesis where it's, Hey, this person has risen to this level because they stabbed somebody in the back to get there. Right. And, and that was what was weeded out in the B2 community fairly early. So even if someone was, um, elevated to a position of authority, you know, uh, like an ops group commander, wing commander, or something like that. Uh, yes, they're occupying that position, but they don't have the respect of the crew force because we, everybody would know what the backstory was. It was such a small community in that sense. Like you hmm. knew everybody. So, um, gotcha. and how they got to that position and whatever. And, and if, and I think one of the lessons is like, Hey, if, if you're in that spot and you've lost the credibility of your workforce underneath you because maybe you made a bad decision or whatever it was, uh, you need to start building back that rapport and that trust. And the way that you do that is by being a servant leader. Um, that's one of the biggest things that I teach at Stealth Elevation is just, hey, look, you need to serve your people and get out of the get out of your own way, right? And figure out the obstacles in their way, eliminate those obstacles and delegate to them and let them perform and show you that they are capable of doing whatever job you hired them to do. Uh, get out of this micromanaging crap and you got to trust your workforce, give them the opportunity, give them the mentorship. And that's something we don't do right now either is we, you know, there's, there's so many distractions with leaders and companies uh, right now. And we're, we're so stuck in this triage of, of the fire of the moment, the fire of the day. And we need to get back to a strategic to tactical mindset that helps us to to look past whatever's going on in the day. Yes, you have to deal with those fires, but you also have to stay strategic and create a vision to get your yourself, your company, your employees out of whatever situation that is that's bringing you down and, and create a better future. Do you think like, and that's awesome. It seems like you guys as a B2 community were kind of like at optimum efficiency. I imagine a part of that is also helped because it is so small. Um, 
And I, I think like even when you look in corporate America, I know uh, Mark Zuckerberg has talked about this with Facebook or now Meta, that they create kind of these little silos where they'll have these competitions or just free time just to go think where they'll get 24 hours to kind of almost have a, a party or like a thinking party with like this little click. Um, and then they come out of it in these ideas like, you know, like reels or, or buying Instagram or just kind of, you know, the chat function in Facebook, like all these ideas come out of that. Um, it, do you find that much in the military? Like, it, was it on purpose to have your BT community be so small? Or is it just a, a lucky byproduct of being kind of like an elite group? Oh, good question. Um, I think, you know, those kind of things, those think groups and different things, you absolutely have to do. Uh, and I, but I think the way that we did it, and because of the way that the B2 crew force is designed um, and hired in, you know, from, from the greater air force, it's, it's very unique. Um, but the way that we did things, I'll just talk, touch on this is sure. when we, when we would set out for a mission, right. And, um, and I talk about this and setting up uh, how to elevate your life and leadership, this new book series that I have. And the first one is the target backwards approach. <clears throat> and this is how we would, we would always function in the B2. We would, when we went out for a goal, whatever it is, and I've adapted this to business and life now. So you, you set a goal right at the beginning of the year, or whatever it is. Uh, let's say it was to make $23 million in 2023. Well, there's certain amount of growth that needs to happen for you to become the person that is able to do that. And, and that's just a personal goal. So if you're doing this for, for your business, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's larger and encompasses much more, but how we would set about it was from the target backwards. And so you put that, that target out there, <clears throat> excuse me. And mm -hmm. you, you work in a way that is, uh, we used to use smart goals as a foundation. Dr. Doran, 1981, came up with smart goals. And I'm sure you've probably heard of that or, you know, yep. it's been around for a long time, but uh, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. And so when you're setting goals, you want to have these criteria uh, because, and the whole purpose <clears throat> is to, be able to debrief at the end of this segment, right? So at the end of your goal, you want to be able to debrief and figure out whether you failed or you succeeded and why you did that. And I think that's that's why we succeeded so well in the B2 and we were able to elevate to new ideas so quickly and solve impossible goals on a daily basis. I mean, we were up uh, it was crazy how how much planning goes on that we don't actually execute because they, I mean these are high level like hey if we have to go attack X country today how do we do that how do we break down the door how do we get there and so what I've done is taken the smart goal process and adapted it to business a little bit a little bit more finite um, hard hitting because those two in the middle attainable and realistic are are kind of, we shouldn't even have those is what I've figured out because everybody sure. stumbles upon that. And they're like, wow, what's attainable? What's realistic? And when you're going for your life and your business goals as an entrepreneur or, or leader in your corporation, you want to not have, in my opinion, attainable and realistic goals. You don't know what that is until you set up the process so that you can debrief at the end and figure out, Hey, was it attainable or realistic? I don't know. When we went through and executed on this, turns out it wasn't, or it was, and we were too low. Our bar was too low. So, 
So what I've done is taken that and the target backwards approach is talking about, yeah, target backwards, strategic to tactical. And we set up what's called what I call SMT goals. And it's just, I took those two out in the middle. So I like so that. want to yeah. just have, you want to just have specific, measurable, timely. Those three elements are essential for your goal setting. And then you can go out and execute on that. So you set out your goal and then you go out and you, and you delegate. And, uh, and I talk about this in my second book on this series, it's the art of elite execution. And you, you set up contingency plans and you do how goes it meetings, which are just 15 minute meetings. You bring everybody back together and you say, Hey, how's it going? You know, what's in your way. And this is a great tool for a leader. Have these little meetings, start them on time, finish them early if you can, but no more than 15 minutes, bring your people back together while you're executing your goal and say, Hey, look, uh, how's it going? You know, do I need to eliminate anything from your pathways? What are, what's holding you up? And as mm -hmm. the leader, you need to be able to delegate those tasks and stay out of the micromanaging facet, stay strategic, get the obstacles out of your people's way, and then, you know, send them out to do it again, do the tactical execution. Now at the end, and what made us unique in the B2 is that we would spend three hours debriefing this stuff. And you, <laughs> you don't have that, but we came up with this way of debriefing where we would say, okay, we would take our original goal, our specific measurable timely goal. Let's say it's make $23 million in 2023. And at the end of 23, you go, Hey, look, it's December 31st. Did we make this or not? And you start going through this process of, hey, I'm going to I'm going to figure out the contributing factors. We did not do this because of X. Maybe uh, there was, you know, we had a wrench, a financial wrench that came in in the middle of the year and we didn't pivot quickly enough to do that. So so you go back and you you analyze these goals that you set at the beginning of the year, beginning of the month, beginning of the week, day, whatever. And, and you say, Hey, what are the contingency, uh, can, what are the contributing factors? What's the root cause of that? So there's one root cause that caused you to fail or succeed. You can, you got to identify that. And then the, the key is it coming up with a, what I call an exciting elevation. So like, what will we do next time? And that way mm -hmm. you're building a foundation to grow off of, and you're not just, constantly setting new goals that you don't know if if you're succeeding if you're building if you're anything so yeah. so um these things that meta that you talk about these think tanks and all that stuff great but really you need to bring the process from goal setting through execution and then debrief to figure out the lessons learned so that you can stack that and now all of a sudden you start stacking better goals on top of each other and now sure. you're getting somewhere right Definitely. And a question I have on that, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but one thing that comes to mind, Joe, I know I've seen it a million times in the business world, especially with entrepreneurs, is that you get this idea, you you find something that, that lights the spark, and then you get married to it. And you're like, I know we can do this. And when you said you, you have your smart goal, and you take out, you know, attainable and realistic, which I like, I get that. <laughs> but then what happens when, you know, you've got not uh, 10 guys on the team, a nine are saying, you know, dude, we tried that. That's just not in the cards. And the one guy is saying, I swear, this is a game changer. We've got to make it work. This is, you know, they love it. That's their passion. How do you address that? Because I see that happens. And sometimes you could have a really talented, you know, killer member of the team that feels like they're ousted because they had this idea that 
you got the other nine guys saying that just we can't do it you know that doesn't work it doesn't have a, a part here mm. um how do you handle that do you keep it going mm. or does that go up to vote like or do you have a leader that says no that idea is getting nixed like where do you go from there so that's a great question. That's, that's a very delicate situation, right? And mm -hmm. uh, luckily in the military, we've had these things um, at a young age and, and you just, you want to make sure that you're inclusive of everybody, right? And and that you're fostering that creativity and the ability to, to bring out these ideas from everybody on the team. And if somebody comes out of left field, this is a game changer. This is what we need to do. Um, and, and the rest of the group says, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think this, so you can, you can flush out that pathway for a few minutes with them and, and say, Hey, okay, how does that work? How does that play out? And let them explain in the public forum. And if they can't do it, then, then you, you need to bring that person aside separately. And I've, uh, I think Vince Lombardi said this, um, uh, praise in public, criticize in private. Right. And that's how good leaders that I've seen and, in, and that I've taken these from, from great mentors is like, dude, you cannot throw that person under the bus right now. Uh, maybe they're out in left field or maybe you need, so you just need to be a leader and bring them in into a closed space with just you and be like, Hey, look, um, this isn't really going to work for us. And maybe that's a future capability. Can you explain that to me? I don't want you to feel like you can't bring these ideas up in the meeting, but um, we need to remain focused on our strategic target right now. And we'll, we'll flush this out at a later pace or whatever. But, uh, but that's how I've seen the best leaders handle those type of situations. Bring that person aside, make sure that they're not, you know, uh, if everybody laughed at them in the meeting or whatever, I definitely would take that person right there afterwards and be like, Hey man, like what's going on? Or, um, can we talk about this deeper? And, and I like, yeah. I love that you have that passion for that idea. Maybe that's a, a future capability. Let's go down that pathway, uh, after we succeed at this current strategic goal that we're going after. But, um, Got it. but that's how I've handled that in the past. Yep. And I love that. I love that kind of, um, you know, praise in public, criticize in private. I remember one of my teachers I really liked in high school said that, like when he would have a, you know, a rowdy student that he just couldn't control. And it's like, man, kid, you're like disrupting the whole class here. You're driving me nuts. And a lot of teachers would just freak out back then when, when they were kind of allowed to. And he always said, you know, at the end of the day, he'd pull him aside, like right when the bell rang and step outside the classroom and kind of tell him like, listen, like, I know you want to be the man. I know you want to be cool in front of all your friends and your classmates, but like X, Y, and Z, we got to cut that out. And he said, it was always just a casual conversation where then in front of the class, it was like a stage where you could never really have that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so I want to, I want to continue with some of this personal development, but I want to hit the rewind button real quick. Cause you had mentioned that flight that I'm sure a lot of listeners just kind of like, wait, he didn't say that, that you <laughs> flew for 31 hours. 31 Can you hours. tell us what that was? Like <laughs> what job entails that, that <laughs> timely flight? <clears throat> yeah. So, um, that was a training mission. It was a combat training mission, a strategic deterrence mission that we did. We were deployed to Guam and uh, my squadron commander, best leader that I ever had, he gave me the opportunity to lead that flight. Uh, and it was huge. It was huge, not only for my personal development in sense of uh, uh, 
uh, a B2 pilot, just being able to go that long. And it was also an execution. There, there was, uh, my instructor upgrade was hanging on the balance of if I could do this mission or not. So okay. there was, there was a lot of pressure, uh, to perform, but, um, but really we were going to integrate with red flag, Alaska, which is a huge, um, exercise with 90, we were to integrate 90 different multinational airplanes in this very small space over Alaska. And basically it simulates the first 10 days of the conflict. And this was night one. And so here come the B2s from Guam and we're going to drop simulated weapons uh, on targets. And then off we go into the darkness again, kind of the deal. So um, it how was, many, uh, when you say you're the leader, just to interrupt real quick, are you leading, you know, how many guys are actually on the, plane with you and are you leading like a a set of other bombers or other aircraft like what's that look like yeah um so there's there's two people in the b2 uh which may be surprising for the listeners to hear too there's only two a crew of two and you're gonna fly that long 31 hours crazy so <laughs> so uh um and there's different ways that we do that and control rest uh but the um but I was a three ship. So I was leading uh, two other uh, crews. And so they each had a leader within their airplane as well, the aircraft commander. And this was me being flight leader of the three ship. And here we go from Guam and we took off to, uh, to Hawaii for the first refueling. And then we went up North um, to uh, Alaska after, after we went through our simulated uh, weapon run with, with these 90 different airplanes and got everybody coordinated and doing the attacks. Then we hit up the second air refueling and started to march. So, so the first part of the mission, you know, it's like the adrenaline is flowing. You're good. You know what you're going to do. And then it was basically the, it's the closest that I got to combat in the B2 and everything was, was that way. They were sending uh, target updates. They were doing everything that you would have done for an actual combat mission. So it was realistic uh, yeah. all the way. And, wow. um, and so we did three different air refueling events um, with a hundred thousand pounds of unloaded gas each time. And, uh, and that was crazy because you know, that, you're hanging on to another airplane for 20 minutes to get that gas, 20, 25 minutes. And that's very precise flying. And at the, at the end of it, you know, the third one was at hour 24 into the mission and you're exhausted. And Jeez. so you're basically taking turns with your co-pilot, like, Hey, I can't get all the gas. Can you get up there and get the rest of the gas? And so we can make it. So it's just, wow. it's, so that's not like click a button, go on autopilot and no, just that <laughs> is, cruise next to each other. You're uh, every time I air refuel, I mean, you're sweating, you're, it's very precise flying. You're in this very small envelope and you got to do it for, for a long period of time. Um, huh. and, and you're just hanging on and getting as much gas as you can. And, just, you know, you get back home. And I remember landing from that one and, uh, my squadron commander was out there and, uh, he was, he was happy that he gave me the opportunity to do that. And he, he took a lot of, uh, a lot of flack for giving me that opportunity because, uh, I was an aircraft commander and a lot of instructors wanted that mission. And, uh, he was like, no, no, I'm going to give it to chronic, you know, chronic needs, he he's earned it. And, uh, 
And so I was able to do it. I, I landed and I remember stepping off the airplane and it was like, I had sea legs, like, you, really? just, you know, like that cruise ship feeling like, wow, you know, you get off like, wow, I'm on dry land again. This is crazy because nobody's designed to fly that long. <laughs> yeah. Can, is there space at all? Like to even walk around the plane? Like I imagine just sitting for that period of time is not healthy. Yeah, no, I mean, we would get up, uh, there's about, so just standing up, it wasn't designed for crew comfort. It was, it's a strategic <laughs> bomber and yep. they didn't really put, put any effort into the crew. So you had, um, behind us, the hatch would close and we had about six feet of, of lateral space there that we could set up an air mattress and, and we would step out of the seat and lay down. And if nothing else, if you didn't fall asleep, then you just, you at least got away from the TV screens and, and you could, uh, you know, get some, some sort of eye rest during that time. Um, and the other thing is, you know, we would make sure that they would have a physiologist come in and they would say, Hey, look, you can sleep during this time and this time. And, and they made sure that, uh, that you didn't enter REM sleep, which is the rapid eye movement section of sleep where you start dreaming and, and you start to uh, process everything. That's, that's where your brain downloads your, you know, your short-term memory into your long-term memory bank, whatever. But when you're in that, and if you wake up in, in REM, you, and you've probably done this before you take a nap, that's too long or whatever. And you wake up and you're just yep. groggy like the rest of the day and so yeah yeah so uh so keep your naps under 45 minutes and you'll see a marked improvement with that (laughs) um but no there was you couldn't like stand up um it was uh you you could but it was like hunched over maybe maybe get up to like five seven or five eight in the back so you're not like totally standing up um and then there's just that space to lay down and that's pretty much it. There's a, there's a little toilet, little camping toilet that we had. So we had that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, it wasn't, it's, it's not like, that's as far as like comfort goes. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I bet. And so just a couple of questions on that. So the B2, I mean, it's called the stealth bomber. Is it undetectable? Like how far does that, that word stealth actually go? So it's, uh, it's not undetectable It's low observable. And that's, we would have to explain that to people too. So uh, it's not like you were undetectable. You're just like, like Superman on your wall back there or whatever. Like (laughs) Uh, you just come in and and blow everything up and nobody sees you coming and that kind of thing. But, uh, but there's different tactics that we use to make us low observable and the stealthy part of uh, the airplane shape is is amazing. The engineers at Northrop Grumman did an amazing job, and they're coming out with the B twenty one Raider, uh, which folks may or may not have heard about. But that's the replacement for the B two and the B one bombers, um, and that's going to be another evolution, which is going to be great. But uh, uh, the B two, the shape, the the uh, amount of engineering that went into it. There's nothing protruding. It's not. Uh, it's not a normal airplane in any sense of the word. You know, everything on the hmm. surface is very, uh, uh, very conformal, and it's designed to 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 move radar waves away from the airplane. So it it helps a lot, but the tactics that we employed uh, made it even better. And so, um, yeah, you had to you had to do something, I guess, is to answer your yeah. question. Otherwise, you'd get shot down. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. 
And that that's just it's so crazy, like the, the technology that you think of and maybe kind of two quick questions on that is you yeah. mentioned, like, you always want to be leaning forward, reaching for what's next, growing in, in every facet of your life and your career. I think nowhere do you see that more prevalent than in technology, like you, you just kind of alluded to. I think a lot of people out there when they hear, oh, we're going to go do reconnaissance or we're going to go drop a bomb over here. Everybody just thinks, oh, they're drones. There's just some guy in Missouri with like an Xbox controller that is flying missions over Russia or something. You know, what's like, did, did pilots, did you guys ever think about that? Like in another year or two years, we're going to be like irrelevant because everything's getting kind of remote controlled here. Like, can you kind of clue us in at all as kind of like where that stands? Yeah, and uh, that's a great question because uh, all this focus on AI and all this stuff, right? And sure. I think I think AI is a great tool. I use AI. I use ChatGPT uh, for for some marketing stuff and some different things. And the way that I equate it is. Uh, it's like an autopilot. It's a tool on the airplane that we use uh, to to lessen our workload. And yeah. I don't see it re replacing uh, a bunch of careers. I know there's some of that uh, mindset out there. I think that, you know, as humans, we evolve and we grow and we we learn to utilize these new tools. And there will be some careers that go away, no doubt. Uh, but we'll evolve and we'll use these into the next thing. And, and I think that, um, that as specifically for pilots and stuff, yes, the drone technology is there, but there's something about having a human in the cockpit and uh, being able to perform at an elite level that just machines, the, the power of our brain is incredible. And uh, this is going to be the focus of my third book in this series. And it's a, it's called uh, uh, how to develop your, your alpha killer, your humble alpha killer elite leadership mindset. And, and it's all about the power of our brains and uh, how we only use about 5% of our brain power. And if we can tap into this, the subconscious, you know, just imagine the capabilities. I mean, we don't think about our heart beating, right. Or, or how to process the image coming into our eyeballs. That's all done with our subconscious brain. And, and it's amazing that we were given this, this amazing tool to, uh, function through life. And so I'm going to explore some of those, those aspects in this next book, but, um, you know, you're always going to need people and, mm -hmm. uh, AI is only going to go so far. It's a tool like autopilot. And, you know, we need people to adapt to situations because right now, like the drone technology and all that stuff, it's just, it's a, it, it's a good capability to have and to add, but when, things go wrong, you want to have somebody in control that can make those decisions that that no computer can think of as of yet. And maybe, maybe it'll get there. I don't know. But you know, when we have an engine fire or something like that, or when when the airspace is blowing up all around you and you're in combat and you need to get the weapon on target, well, uh, let me tell you, no, no computer can do that stuff. And um, so utilize AI for what it is and, and definitely use it for your advantages. You know, it can help you in so many ways, um, in your, your business and your finances and, and everything. It can be a great research assistant. It can be a great, uh, kind of autopilot for you and mm -hmm. alleviate your workload. But, but that's how we use autopilot, right? It's like, it's like we'll put autopilot on so that we don't have to worry about maintaining altitude and airspeed and we can 
get back up to the strategic level and make those better decisions. And so I think it has the potential to do that for every aspect of our life and help us to elevate, get back to that strategic, get out of those fires of every day and start to actually go toward a target. And we need to do that. Got it. I agree wholeheartedly. And, and maybe last question kind of on in the B2 space that I have for you today. So you were, I mean, you had at your hands some of the latest and the greatest that, you know, American technology and innovation could come up with. Where do you think we stand right now on like a, a global scale, at least from what you've seen, what you've heard in the community, um, you know, with with the rest of the world? I mean, you yeah. hear so much now about just it's us and china two global superpowers and then all the stuff going on with russia and what their capabilities are and but really i guess china and the us kind of leapfrogging each other a little bit here and there um how do you feel about us right now you know <laughs> america um, what's your your quick impression yeah my quick impression is that we are falling behind and we need to really we need to drastically catch up and i think that's that's happening uh we realized that a few years back when russia started testing hypersonics and and the same thing with china and we were like whoa wait a second <laughs> we're we're not right there yet and so um i think the defense industry is is catching up uh rapidly um and with aspects like the b21 and different things that are coming online um as far as uh, a technology aspect now china has been developing their weapons systems and their military and their reach for the last 20 years while we were bogged down in in afghanistan and uh, iraq and and different places and uh it's you know, so we were kind of destroying our military capability while they were building up and they haven't been in conflict. So now it's like a rapid progression to, we still have the technological edge, but I think, you know, China has come to a near peer and, uh, and that is the one, uh, one area that we need to, to really pay attention to Russia is, you know, it's who knows, man, that's uh that's a crazy situation because, uh, every day it's changing. And, um, uh, but uh, just from a global perspective, and and I loved being part of the B2 community because we were always on this global chess game with like what's going on and how do we how do we shape the the battle space or the future battle space for this and that. And I'm not saying that we're gonna go to war with China. Hopefully we don't. I hope there's I think there's a pathway that we can both grow together and everything, especially as you know in the financial markets. <laughs> uh, and many aspects of business, you know, China is very intertwined with the United States. Sure. So it's, it's a, it's a great, um, it could be a great benefit ally for us in many circumstances, but they have, they, they do have uh, uh, aspirations to expand their reach. And I think, you know, we need to have the capabilities to, uh, help protect not only our interests, but uh, interests of other sovereign nations that aren't quite up to that capability. And so, um, so yeah, so I think we're, we're, we're on that near peer now. It's not, it's no longer the United States. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it is what it is, I mean, if that's the yeah. truth, like, and I think a lot of people would kind of have that thought or that feeling as well. So just to kind of wrap up a lot of, um, you know, we discussed today, I think a a question I have, and I'm sure a lot of listeners would, you know, really appreciate some insight into this. So you mentioned a lot, you know, that if if things hit the fan, you have to have kind of that human element to be able to compartmentalize and then immediately make decisions, you know, based on the knowledge that you have. 
do you have a, a particular instance or story where you got blindsided, you know, while you were in that plane and, and you had to make those quick decisions where it did feel kind of like those life or death moments? Um, yeah. So let me see. Uh, I got it several, uh, I'll just pull back <laughs> when, uh, when, so there's a decision-making model and I think I always like to relate stuff to, to, to people and, uh, and help them in their decision-making process. So, um, John Boyd, Colonel John Boyd in the air force came up with, and this was a long time ago, uh, 1970s, something like that. He came up with the OODA loop and it's a decision-making model, um, uh, that we base everything on in the air force. And it was part of our leadership training and all that. And it's something that, that everybody can use. And it's the OODA. It stands for, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. And those are the four steps. So, so when you're in a crisis situation, you want to make sure that you're doing that, right? And so uh, to illustrate that, I'll tell you a story. When I had uh, engine fire indications in the KC-10, it was my very first deployment sortie um, in the tanker. And we took off and we were uh, 590,000 pounds and we we're in the Middle East. And uh, it's the, the heaviest that I ever took off. It's a maximum weight of the airplane. And I remember wow. we're, we're going down the runway and it was, I'm nervous because it's my first, my first time this heavy. And it's my first time going to, to war. We were headed to Afghanistan. So I'm like, holy cow, you know, we're going down the runway and the, the runway, the end of the runway is getting closer and we haven't, we haven't rotated yet to get it airborne. And so I'm like, oh, and it was my, my flying leg. So I'm flying and, uh, the engineer finally calls out, uh, rotate, whatever. And we pull up and, and we're headed airborne. And I had this moment of like, wow, I, I'm flying this thing. It's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we get the gear up and everything and passing around 1800 feet. Um, we got the engine fire bell goes off and, and it feels like you're back in the simulator. Cause you simulate this stuff all the time. Like, wow, there's engine fire. Uh, okay. And I did exactly what we talked about earlier with a compartmentalization. Um, you take a breath, you smoke that lucky, right? You don't want to immediately make a decision in the crisis situation. You need to yep. go through that decision-making model, observe, orient, decide, act. So you smoke that lucky and observe, and you're like, oh, okay, I got an engine fire indications, the left engine, okay, cool. Uh, so I've observed, I'm orienting now with, it's the left engine, not the right engine. Uh, where am I? I'm at 1800 feet going up to 3000. Okay. So I'm getting, I'm building my situational awareness picture correctly so that I can make the decision and acting part of this happens. So then all of a sudden your engine's on fire. You got to do something, right? You got to decide to, Hey, look, okay. There's in, in the, in the air force and any airplane, we had what's called a bold face and, and at United it's uh, quick reaction items, these things that you memorize. And so you're like the checklist that you yep. don't have time to look up and you're like, okay, cool. So now I'm observing, I'm orienting. And now I go into, uh, okay, the decision-making process. I need to bring out this memory checklist that I have. Okay. I'm going to shut down and bring the throttle back, pop the, uh, engine fire handle, um, rotate it and it, it expend the fire extinguisher. Okay. So now I'm making that decision and I finally, I have to act. I have to put those things into motion for me to do that. And then 
And then once you do that and you shut down the engine, now you're back at the start of the OODA loop again. You go, okay, now I got the engine shut down, observe, orient, decide, act. I got to get this thing back down on the ground, right? So any situation that you're going through, any crisis situation, any high pressure negotiation, any uh, sort of financial crisis thing that we're going through, especially like uh, I can imagine when SVB Bank failed all of a sudden, like, whoa, holy cow, you know, it's a shock moment. So yep. you need to go through that, observe, orient, decide, act. And don't and remember to smoke that lucky at the beginning before yeah. you do any of that so that you don't make it because you, you're going to make a rash decision, right? If you just yeah. go into deciding and acting like, oh, we need to do this. Mm, you didn't observe and orient your environment first. So most likely you're going to make a wrong decision. Like in, in the case of my engine fire, I would have been like, wow, I just, oh, there's an engine fire. I'm just going to decide that I'm just going to pull something and shut down the engine. I need to get this solved right now. Well, it would have been the wrong engine. And then, and then what, well, now we're really messed up. So. Yeah. Wow. That's, and it, there are so many parallels there. I mean, obviously you're seeing it on such a intense, you know, environment, but it's just like we say in, in finance, when emotion mixed with finance, and you could say when emotion mixed with any critical decision, usually the outcome is not a very good one. Yes. And it's, it's interesting. Cause I think you pull back that emotion when you do like that OODA loop, I think you said, where you kind of, you, you examine what the environment's like first before you say, oh crap. And then just hit the, hit a button, you know, randomly or, or pick an investment or sell or buy or whatever exactly. the case may be. And yeah. so in, in closing here, Joe, I mean, I, I could go on and on with this. There's so much insight here. One of the things I like to talk about with my guests, and I'm sure a lot of our regular listeners are familiar with me talking about how we discuss wealth in its original meaning, you know, a state of well-being. If we look back at the etymology, the word going back to wheel, you know, that's actually what it meant was just well-being. So with this career that you've had, the life that you've led thus far, how would you define wealth to you, to yourself? Mm, great question. I, and I love the way that you talk about this. And, and it's true, like wealth and what I've learned and what I've gone through and recovering from my divorce and stepping into the entrepreneurial world and everything is, you know, true wealth and true fulfillment in life to me is being able to give of your talents and unique passions to help other people grow because I've never had more fulfillment and more wealth in my life. And, and that's not monetary, right? It's like just being able to help people and to turn the light bulbs on and have them achieve what they are setting out to achieve. It's, it's been incredible for, for my sense of well being And, and it's, uh, Along with that, I've learned to be grateful, right? So I wake up in the morning. The first thing I do, my heart's beating. and It's amazing, right? So we have been given a new, a new day, a unique day. And uh, I believe that each of us is to maximize that day because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so I start with gratitude and that just formulates my whole day. And now I can, I can, if you start putting out that positive energy into the world, you're going to get it back. And, uh, and it also keeps you from the, the negative stuff. So it's not like every day is great, blah, 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 but it's, a matter of just being setting yourself up, being grateful for the day and giving of your unique talents and passions, the passions and talents that I don't have, that you don't have, that, that, you know, we all are given these amazing gifts. And I believe it's to give others and help them on their journey of 
life and what I call life, leadership, relationships, business, all that stuff. And um, to obtain their legacy impact, their true wealth and freedom, uh, because that's what we're, we're really all after, you know, is just like, hey, what... I mean, what do we go to work for every day? What is our entrepreneurial journey or or any of our journeys? It's it's for uh for that true wealth, that fulfillment, that you you know, there's just that amazing feeling that you can't get with uh just being so focused on on a monetary aspect of wealth. I mean, that's one aspect. Yep. It it helps, but <laughs> Yep, but just one spoke of the wheel. Yeah, yeah. It's spot on. Well, it was really cool, Joe. I feel like uh, no pun intended when we say we looked at things from a 10,000 foot view. You know, maybe you've had an <laughs> 80,000 foot view or however high you were flying. Um but this is awesome. So where can folks find out more about, you know, what you're doing, what you're speaking on, you know, a lot of great insights to to take away here. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so stealthelevation.com is a great place to start. That's a website. But uh, other than that, I'm on socials. I try to do little videos and, and little things. So I'm on TikTok, uh, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all that stuff, just trying to provide insights for, for your life and your journey to help you elevate to the next level. And uh, so you can find me, Joseph Van Dusen, on socials or Stealth Elevation. Uh, there's on any of my socials, there's a link tree that goes to everything that I've done, uh, recently, all the books and, and how to book for speaking engagements and leadership events. Um, uh, all that stuff is, is there. So uh, I've tried cool. to make it as easy as possible for people to find us and, and they just have to make the decision to, uh, Hey, elevate. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you so much for the time, Joe. This is really, really interesting. I really had a good time having this conversation. I had a great time with you. Thanks for having me, Brian. This is awesome. Definitely. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning into another episode of the Kaderna podcast. Again, I'm Brian Kaderna. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Joseph Van Dusen. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're tuning in, and we will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.